0: Welcome back to the Burning Phoenix podcast and a special welcome now to York. We're here for a few days in north of England, the town of Constantine the Great. So we're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, but first, we just wanted to uh, to share a bit of news. We had a wonderful conversation uh, earlier this week with English professor and also Dante podcaster Robert Louis Abrahamson. So he's uh, Emeritus Professor in English for the European Division of the University of Maryland. And studied at Amherst College, University of Edinburgh, and Rutgers University. So he uh, he he grew up in in the states, and then he moved to England. And then he's been working on and uh, teaching, and also now podcasting about Dante for the several decades. So uh, we had a great conversation about the sphere of the moon and like this first step in like the ten levels of Paradiso, and especially focusing on how. Uh, a major part in what Dante is trying to to express and communicate is the need to change your perspective, transform your 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 mental kind of outlook and apprehension, in order to be able to understand what he's talking about in the Paradiso, but also then like more deeply or kind of in a more uh, more essential sense about understanding the spiritual and then opening this this world of the eternal truths and like the transcendent realm in the kind of the widest sense. So there is a need for a shift of perspective, a new way of thinking and seeing the world. And that is very much what Dante is trying to, to uh, help us with, with the sphere of the moon as a kind of a gate through examples, through descriptions, and also through a couple of paradoxes. So uh, uh, this the episode uh, was published and earlier this week, so we're going to put a link in the description, and uh, it's on our Dante's Paradiso podcast. And then, just a quick note about Constantine the Great, since we now are in York, in Yorkshire. Uh, Just very briefly, but Constantine became the Emperor of the Roman Empire in York, in, in a sense. So at the time, in 306 AD, you had four emperors in the Roman Empire. This was called the tetrarchy, and tetra is for four from Greek, tetaris, which means four, it's like a, a rule of four. So you had two ruling emperors and you have two successors. And this was then the Eastern and the Western Empire. So at the time in 306, it was Constantinus I in the Western Empire and Galerius in the Eastern Empire. And the successors were Severus II and Maximus II. And then what happens is that Constantinus I is here in York with his army and also with his son, Constantine, and then Constantinus dies, and then the army decides that instead of appointing the successor, Severus II, as the new emperor, they appoint Constantine directly instead. And this creates... Like a, like a huge chaos in the empire and the ruling of the empire. Galerius is very much opposed to this. And then he then appoints Severus II to the ruling em- emperor and then appoints Constantine, kind of grants Constantine to be the successor. But the army, who are then here in York, they uh, do not agree with this. They keep Constantine. And then what you get is a civil war within the Roman empire, which lasts for about 18 years. So, the death of Constantinus I is in 306. The army appoints Constantine to the emperor. And then in 324, that's the year when Constantine becomes the sole ruler of the whole Roman Empire. And then, just as a third year to remember, like we have 306, 324, and then in 330, Constantine moves the capital of the Roman Empire to Byzantium. And he calls it then Constantinople, which is today Istanbul. So the three, three names for that city. It's very important to, to note that the capital moves. It's not like Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Empire. It was the capital of the Roman Empire. And then the Western Empire became under the rule of, of Constantinople. So when the Western Empire falls in 476 it's already over 140 years, 146 years, when was not the, the seat of, of the capital of the empire. It's just important to note this. Uh, very often in Western history, we tend to look at the Eastern Empire as something on the side, but it becomes the center in many ways in 330. Though at the same time, Rome always keeps this very special role and position for a long long list of of important reasons, (laughs) and it also remains kind of the, the, the seat of Christianity as well, with Peter especially. Okay, so that was just a local history with Constantine. 306, he becomes emperor of the Western Empire, 324, for the full empire, and then he moves the capital in 330. And then we want to move on to the listener questions. So we asked last time for um, uh, for two things. So one was like a favorite discovery learning moment that you had from reading medieval and classical literature, and if there was a specific moment that changed your life or the trajectory of your life. Uh, and then the other one was like the biggest conundrum and dilemma you're trying to solve in your own life at the moment. And then we're going to try to connect this to, to the timeless wisdom from the old traditions. So we got uh, several very interesting um, responses. We're just going to look at two of them today, and then we're going to save the rest for uh, future episodes. So we're going to start now with uh, the first one from AC. He lives in upstate New York, and he wrote, uh, Oh yes, in classical literature, it's definitely reading Dante and opening up the encyclopedic mind that let me come to orthodoxy about two years later. The divine scolding was very profound, and the concept, he could fall again, when she says to him, Beatrice, to let him keep suffering it deepens the idea of suffering other than that i kind of think it has to be the big total that links itself in terms of like the the comedy why the comedy was so important and then also ugolino and the tower how hate and betrayal don't let go and it puts us at the fall of man with the idiom in the text so uh, some comments on this like it's a huge joy of course that he's uh, mentioning dante as pivotal kind of medieval text that changed his perception and apprehension of the world and also then the trajectory which will then kind of reverberate for decades to come in terms of just staking out a new path and new aim in life. So that that is a huge thing in terms of your own life and then the impact old literature can have on you. So when it's about the uh, the Divine scolding. This is then the Garden of Eden when Beatrice finally arrives. And she is very harsh on Dante. Uh, there are several things to think about this. So one, one is that she represents kind of the final judgment in some sense, the final ultimate and the real judgment on Dante, which in the comedy is stated as that he failed his talents and also that he fell away from kind of the transcendent truths early in life. And then he came back to it later. So a part of this is kind of... It seems like this is something about Dante being very hard on himself for being kind of blind or in this dark forest for decades of his life, it seems like. Um, And then the wasted time in terms of what he could have done with his life had he not wasted these decades. It's not clear when this is exactly... He starts writing the comedy with Inferno when he's about 43 years old. And at that time, it seems fairly matured, everything about theology and philosophy and kind of the un- unification of them. So maybe around the mid-30s could be. That's what he states, like the middle of life in the opening. So maybe mid, mid-late mid 30s is when he finally kind of clicks and he, he finds kind of back to the to the dritta via, as he calls it, like the right way in life and the, the truth and the beauty and the connection with with uh, the mystery and the heavens and unifying all of it. And again, then as the, the contrast to to being uh, separated from the spiritual life and the heavens. And then the suffering idea is also, just to underline this, the consequences of our own choices. So that is very much like this, uh, this divine scolding is about choices you made and then then uh, the consequences of this uh and then as a part of the like a very related issue is about the mercy and that you could always change your path there's always the possibility to redirect and kind of find a new aim and and move towards something that is actually the the transcendent truth beauty and and the good as well Uh, when it comes to the big total uh this is such a great point about comedy like as uh, A.C. writes here, that is a big total that links itself. Um, this is the the whole overall uh, aspiration of Dante is to write, which is also the late medieval thinking and philosophy and the spiritual philosophy, that you unite everything into a, a coherent or a, it's tempting to say integrated, but it's a bit more like it's unified. It's a slightly different way of thinking about it. Um, and then all of this should be then kind of linked with each other or influencing each other or, or have make sense in terms of each other. When you talk about the highest of the philosophy or the highest of the theology, but also local history, contemporary history of Dante and his personal life, and every aspect of, of the experience of life. And it's also very interesting to, to just note that Dante had the whole story, that like the whole frame, overall view of the comedy when he starts about 1308 is the kind of the usual estimate, with the Inferno. So this is again when he's around 43 years old. Like The two opening cantos outline the whole of the comedy in incredible preciseness, which in some ways kind of locked him into the narrative after it was published in 1314. But there's kind of still no or close to none like examples of incoherence, at least in the overall view of, of, uh, of the comedy. Uh, and then he wrote just as a side note, he wrote the rest until thirteen twenty one. and that's when he finished Paradiso and also when he passed away. And um, the last point from uh, AC about Ugolino, so this is this is right, like the the next last thing in in the deepest of Inferno. It's often thought about as the worst part of it is worse than than meeting Lucifer in itself in the deepest kind of inner circle of circle nine. Uh, because it's it's kind of more it's both historically accurate and it's about the, the horribleness of this person locked up in a tower with his children and then they were just left there to to slowly starve and die and then also what Dante hints at is kind of uh, what they did to eventually as some of them died but to to keep living for a longer time it's uh it's just too horrible <laughs> to, to say it out kind of kind of directly um, but again it's this is Dante describing kind of the, the deepest of something, which then also then later flips into kind of the, the potential for the, for the opposite, which is kind of infinite. Uh, and it's also food for deep contemplation. So the, that was some of the thoughts on, on the comment from AC. And then the next comment was from Tom in Charlotte, North Carolina. So he says on the first question about the discovery learning moment from medieval classical literature, he says, uh, my greatest discovery from reading medieval literature was that Dante inserted a mention of free will at the very center of his divine comedy, as if to say, everything hinges on that. In the Christian life, all we have to focus on is our will, because that's where the divine gave us our freedom. The decisions that we make with our free will are ultimately responsible for the state of our soul, anxious and angry, or peaceful and joyous. In this sense, Christianity is a recipe for happiness. So, Some thoughts on this, um, on this idea is that it, this goes straight into the heart of the Divine Comedy and its cosmology, that how we exercise our free will leads to different outcomes of a state of metaphorically then Inferno or Paradiso. And that this agency of the free will is what actually makes us living souls and beings rather than mechanical cause and effect machines. And understanding this aspect is in many ways the central key to unlocking the deepest wisdom and beauty of the comedy. It's gradually revealed in Purgatory, but even more so in Paradiso, which shows that aligning the free will or metaphorically giving back the greatest gift that we have received from the heavens, giving it back again through understanding and aligning with truth, is the path to salvation and to an abundantly rich and meaningful life. And in some ways, perhaps even the ultimate test of our soul in our journey through the earthly life. So this is such a great point from Tom, like a great discovery, if that was like if to get that out, out of the comedy is in many ways such an essential and almost like a main point of what Dante is trying to communicate in terms of what we can do as individuals to be aware of our uh, possi- like our potential for making choices and then that we can also then shape our own future through making the right choices and then the second part from Tom, again in Charlotte, North Carolina, about the biggest conundrum and dilemma you're trying to solve in your life at the moment. And then he says here, the biggest conundrum I'm trying to solve in these days is, how can I really and deeply integrate my combative side who wants to win above all, with my deeper loving and reflective side? Prayer is the answer, but are there any specific recommendations? So some thoughts uh, on this, some aspects on this, is that uh, this is a timeless dilemma or a dynamic in our lives and something that Dante likely struggled with a lot too, to balance this properly. If we draw from the comedy, the most obvious ideas would be the warnings of Inferno and the rewards of Paradiso as reminders of the real consequences of our choices and how we balance our lives. And also keeping in mind the number one virtue to keeping the vice of pride and envy at bay, and that of humility and the image of the pilgrim on his knees at the start of Mount Purgatory. That's kind of what is the right way. And another perspective is the idea of telos, and what the combativeness is ultimately aimed at. This is important in terms of being combative in itself is is not a vice, but it depends what you're aiming at. Uh, If it is the higher goals and virtues, is a good thing, or if it's more the earthly desires and personal ambitions, then it's not a good thing. Ambition and the drive to win are great forces in themselves, when aimed at or aligned with the right higher goals and virtue. And in that sense, they are to be celebrated and encouraged when embedded in the right framework of increasing virtue, or to enlarge the participation in the good, as an example. So it's just keeping these, these ideas uh, as a larger frame when you think about uh, which side of yourself you are giving focus or giving giving time or or kind of expressing the most, if it's a combative side or a more reflective side. So it's kind of how you balance and unify this with the overall aim. And then he had a follow-up point on this. Are these two sides capable of understanding uh, that they are both working for the same ultimate goal or is the combative side at risk of not listening, and of trying everything it can to seek victory, power, and material success. So, some thoughts on this, that this is an excellent follow-up, and here too we might think of Ulysses and Inferno 26, and Dante's temptation to lean over and fall into the round 8 of Circle 8. Which is then metaphorically how Dante sees this this pull or instinct in himself for intellectual pride. The risk of the combative side to take control is what underlies so much of the idea of pride and the strong impetus for this in parts of our human nature, which is in part why pride is the deepest sin or mistake or vice, and warned against in Greek mythology with the countless stories about hubris and the eventual consequences of nemesis which is the punishment from the goddess descending with her sword. And at least one essential idea here is to be conscious of these things. That's kind of a first step. To take stock and ask oneself, am I on the right track here? What goals am I really pursuing? Maybe once every few months could be a good habit to stop, and step back and get back to the big picture of what is really important. But also to evaluate if there are any alternative motives that have gradually started to influence you, kind of crept in there, and affect your outlook and your priorities. A third idea could be to remember the second dream in Purgatory, where the siren is transfixing the pilgrim and transforming, in his his perception, from its true nature as a monster into a beautiful and seductive singer. Rationality itself, through Virgil, is not capable of breaking this spell alone. He needs the presence of a saintly figure, as he puts it, to go through with the confrontation and metaphorically rip off the illusion of our less helpful desires and see the reality of it. So, in that sense, regular meditation and prayer to keep the saintly or heavenly as a presence in your mind and your consciousness is at least a big step towards reducing the risk of going astray. And more directly, the combative side not listening would from the perspective be more about shifting aims for that side. If the bigger picture is kept as the overall guiding system for yourself, the combative side will have to align itself properly, and in that sense being an expression of the free will but it is indeed a constant balance to be attentive to. Again, for example, through daily or weekly contemplations, and then bigger moments of taking stock every few months. And finally, last point on this, just being aware of this dynamic is in many ways the biggest step already for internal self-management and towards the inner purification of purgatory. After this, as suggested in Paradiso, the truth and beauty of the divine will make it gradually impossible to deviate from it, as it is the long-term true and positive way of life. And this is something that comes more and more in Paradiso. That they talk about the blessed souls as so aligned with and kind of so much an expression of of more like divine heavenly truths that they they can't they deviate from it. They can't move their feet from it because. They just want to stay in that experience and that participation in the good. So um, those are some of the thoughts on uh, what Tom in uh, Charlotte wrote and also AC in Upstate New York. And then uh, we have a few more that we're going to take in a later episode. So that was uh, most of the things we want to say today. Uh, Just a little teaser also we're working on and we're going through these so we're reading it in the original Italian in small portions to get really into the deep of the original words and and connotations and concepts that Dante is expressing directly from himself and then we're now looking at something that's very interesting which is about the Roman Empire and how he sees the Roman Empire as like an in, in an overall view um, like a, a gradual alignment of kind of the governance and the laws towards more virtue compared to the alternatives in that time, in that ancient world. So it's a huge step forward, like in terms of uh, as a progress towards more virtue first, and then also more of the uh, theological truths and the transcendent truths as they are described in the biblical stories in the way that Dante sees this. So there's something interesting about that perspective that the laws and the governance it has to align with with the eternal truths in order to function properly in the longer term. If that deviates, the same like if you as a person deviate from from the the virtues and the truths and start engaging in the vices instead, it has negative consequences. But then suddenly Dante takes a step up in the second sphere of the of Paradiso, and like this applies just as much to. Civilizations, like cultures, societies, civilizations, empires, that they too have to be aligned with the bigger truths. If not, it will go very badly. As he, as he explicitly states it, it it always goes badly once it starts going astray from from the tr- the truths. So uh, we're going to work more on that, and we're going to have put that on the Dante's Paradiso podcast, and um, we're also going to go through a couple of the kind of the overall ideas again here in future episodes so with that this was uh, a lot longer than planned (laughs) almost 25 minutes but I hope some of this was interesting Um, again just wanted to to give a little uh, plug for the conversation we had with Robert Louis Abrahamson and then also thank you so much to both AC and Tom for submitting some thoughts and some comments on their own kind of journey through ancient medieval literature and how it has changed their lives and also the trajectory for their lives which is a major point of of reading and studying and getting to know and becoming familiar with the tradition in the first place like tradition means to pass on tradire uh, so that is like that which is valuable for yourself to to learn and from like generation to generation through through from like time period to time period so That's that's what we're also trying to do here (laughs) with bringing this up and connecting it to something practical. So with that, again, thank you so much for listening and um, we will be back soon with another episode. See you then.